Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Poolside Pass podcast. Today's episode is a special edition, if you like. Uh, it was um, our live episode that we streamed on the 3rd of June 2020 via YouTube. Um, if you're listening on Catch Up On Demand, um, please don't get in touch on the live stream or or using the, the Twitter hashtag, uh, the Poolside Live, um, as it's not currently being monitored because this event has already taken place. Um, but do enjoy the episode, do listen back on some great discussions with John Rudd, Ian Arbiger and Dave Champion. Before we get into uh, the recording, um, just a quick line from our sponsors, Streamlined. Become a qualified swimming teacher with Streamlined in as little as six days. Learn at your own pace and be guided by our expert tutors. You can do your training face-to-face, online in real-time, or a combination of the two. Assessment can be in your club using videos or attending one of our assessment venues. We offer tailored, high-quality support. Quote the poolside pass for an extra 10% discount. Hello, everyone. Welcome to what is episode 16 of the poolside pass podcast. Um, This episode is is special because it's live. Uh, It's the first live episode we've ever done. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, by coaches John Rudd, Ian Armiger, and Dave Champion, um, who between them, I'm sure, have have over 70 years uh, of coaching experience between them. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, that sounds painful. Ian Armiger's got that in mind. Uh, let's make sure you get that. That's the, that's the combined total, not my single. <laughs> Thank you. So... Um, <laughs> Just to introduce some, going to be a long one. Just to introduce them uh, quickly, uh, Dave Champion is head coach at Team Ipswich, um, having coached the likes of Karen Pickering, Zoe Cray, um, to, to international appearances uh, for Great Britain. Uh, Ian Armiger, former director of swimming at Loughborough University uh, and coach of, of countless international swimmers. Uh, and John Rudd, who's currently national performance director uh, for Swim Ireland, um, former head coach at Plymouth Leander, uh, coaching um, notably uh, Ruta Malatuta, um, to Olympic gold in London 2012. Um, so, just a quick outline of the episode today. Um, we have got some set topics. So we're going to be discussing uh, the use of kickboards, managing talent within a program, uh, and tips of putting swimmers on international teams from club programs. But after that, uh, we'll go into a, to a straight kind of Q&A format where coaches that are watching on YouTube can put... Um, questions in the live chat on there or coaches that we've got in the zoom call with us uh, will also be able to 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 come in with some questions as well um so without any further ado uh, we'll get stuck into our main topic on the screen uh, if you're watching on youtube there is uh, a hashtag uh, hashtag poolside live uh, if you're going to contact us using social media then uh, make sure you use that hashtag so i can pick up your social media question um Let's get stuck in. So um, we're going to start with a nice kind of discussion topic on kickboards. Um, I know John, you kind of posted a, an article on Twitter a few weeks back about about the use of kickboards. Um, do you want to go into some detail as to, to perhaps why you you don't use them so often? Uh, yeah, sure. So well, first of all, it wasn't my article. Um, it was an article that I read, and the abs- and pretty much everything in it resonated with me because. I hadn't used uh, kickboards in uh, uh, certainly in freestyle or butterfly kicking for I don't know maybe eight or ten years, 
uh, until I came to this job in, in Ireland where, where I'm not on deck so much anymore. Um, and so the things that were mentioned in the article, you know, really struck with me. I, I would still advocate the use of a small kickboard, maybe a learn to swim type size kickboard for breaststroke kick, because I think it helps drop the hips into the into a, a position that, that sits with a true breaststroke body position for the full stroke. But I certainly wouldn't advocate the use of the larger kickboards that kids just tend to lean on, um, chat whilst they're kicking, uh, get themselves out of a correct body position, um, put pressure on the lower back and the pelvis, um, and generally lose focus on the kick set if you if you give them such an item. Um, I think streamline kicking on freestyle is the way to go with a front-facing snorkel. I think the same on butterfly, but maybe not in the streamline position, maybe the hands at shoulder width, so they're in a, almost a catch position for butterfly, uh, which allows the body position or the, the, the body undulation, the whole body movement of the butterfly kicking to be allowed and accentuated without putting pressure on the lower back. And the only time that we dust off or used to dust off the kickboards and throw them in is during taper, just so that the, the guys are just a, a little bit extra and something that was you know, kind of a bonus in, in taper around the psychological aspects of taper. Um, but no, I certainly wouldn't advocate them. Now, we set, we use them for um, kicking against a vertical kickboard sometimes for power kicking over short repeats, 10, 12, 15 metres. Um, but no, as far as I'm concerned, they're the devil's work and they, uh, they shouldn't be in any <laughs> So, um, thanks. Thanks for that, John. Um, just interested to hear what what Dave and Ian think about the use the use of kickboards uh, within training. We'll, we'll start with Dave. Dave, what, what's your opinion on this? Well, uh, we've um, we've just started. We've just started. Uh, so we, I don't let my guys use a kickboard per se. You know the the sort of triangular finished ones, right? Much much smaller, and you kind of it's like a I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a streamlined one, I think. So what we do is. Uh, we do we do most of our kicking with that, uh, and then or we do our kicking streamline with snorkels. Like we use snorkels a lot. That's like our snorkels fins would be our go-to bit of equipment. And then uh, it, and it's interesting. John says power kick because that's the other thing we do. We do a lot of power kick. So upright in the water, and it's like uh, it's immense. If if you can if you're good at that, you're all right. But so we 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 tend not to simply because the reason we started using a smaller kickboard. With similar reasons to John, really, in that like they just seem to lay on it. It's like a tombstone. So like, and it all seemed very casual. It didn't seem to do anything. And we, we don't really have time for casual. We don't really have time for social kick. So uh, when we're doing kick, it has to have a purpose, and that means it has to be done in a specific way or in an amount of time. So I, 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 we're the same, except we, we use those yellow floats. I like those. It makes a big difference as well. Streamline kicking. They can't make the same turnarounds they can with those giant floats. Perfect. Um, I think, like you say, it's the use of those small boards. Um, I often like to do that now and again as well. Um, I think it just takes a little bit of the stress off, off the shoulder joint, especially when you've got a big float and put quite a, quite a bit of pressure through. Uh, Ian, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think it's good that we've got three guys here and it, it'll highlight the fact that there's, there's differences of opinions, but there's many ways to you know, get success because <laughs> I'm going to argue the other, well, go for the other way. And remember, of course, I'm dealing with senior athletes. Really, I'm referring to senior athletes. 
So basically, we would differentiate between kick sets and kick practices. So for kick sets, we would use kickboards. Um, you know, so you're cranking out the sets within a, within a, a cycle, and we, it would be phased. So there'd be like weeks of endurance kick, weeks of power kick, and weeks of speed kick leading into the to the major meets. And uh, I've never had any problems with uh, lower back, you know, lower back problems or anything like that uh, using the the, the, the big kickboards. Uh, up to 2004, I didn't really do much kick. I either did uh, full stroke or a bit of light pulling, uh, not in, uh, not resistance pull. But 2004, when I looked, went to Arizona to visit the program and Frank Bush, they were doing big kick sets on a Tuesday and Thursdays up to like 4K. And when I came back, I kind of changed a little bit. And we usually had, say, Wednesday mornings, we went long course kick, two and a half K to three K session, uh, coming off the back of a heart rate set that was on the Tuesday night, which was a short course. So we came off uh, swimming at the kick. And uh, then if you look at, say, kick sets like that, just cranking it out in those phases, or kick practices where you're looking at what what's the reason for the kicking? Is it, you know, is it to increase endurance or whatever it's going to be or is it to uh, look at kick rates off the walls off the turns on the breakouts so you, you you're creating practices and skills and drills to address those issues of kick frequency um and then incorporate into the breakouts of the waters and do kick your kick practices in many many ways which are incorporated in some of the the swim sets and uh, everything's addressing the components of the event through the race profiling. So that's really my take on it. Just, um, I think that um, obviously there we've got, we've got different, different points of opinion, so whether to use kickboards or not. Um, can, can we all agree on, you know, how fundamentally important uh, the use of the use of kick within a program is? Um, I don't think you, you'll find a, a swimmer world-class swimmer that's that, that's not good at, at kick um what are your thoughts on how important kick is as a as a training modality we'll start with ian who are we talking to john we'll start with ian and we'll go back across the back across the line yeah. i mean as i said up, up to 2004 i never i never really did kick sets to be honest within the program as i said i, I did swim or a light pull and kick wasn't something that uh that I did, but then obviously I changed my mind and, and, and realized that I needed it, particularly for the for the sprint guys. And my, my range is probably 50, 51, 2, 4. I can push a bit further, but you know, probably it's not the 15s or the 10Ks or anything like that. And I'm particularly interested in 50 and 100 swimming and the importance of kick in those areas. And also, obviously, for breaststroke and the breaststroke guys need to, uh, and again, kicking on the board, I never had any problems with knee problems or anything like that. But again, I'm, I'm talking about senior athletes here. So for younger swimmers, I maybe have a different take on it, as John does. But for the senior swimmers, again, it's something that I did use. Dave? Uh, well, um, same thing really, right? So like, what, I, I, I probably, if I had the choice, I'd probably kick more. I, I think it's really important. But like, um, so for us, we're... Um, uh, we're sort of like we've got these kids. We're age group. We're an age group program, right? So like, not like Ian and and, and even like um, when John was at Plymouth, you know, like he had a big crop of much senior athletes. Whereas the kids I'm doing, they're like on their journey. 
So really, like, my job is to try and equip them for when they get to that. So my job really is just to try and make sure that, that they've got the best skills they can have. And like, uh, like you rightly said, I think um, there isn't many swimmers of a certain level who can't kick. So like, uh, I, I like it. I think um, what I don't do, or what, what we, we don't do, we don't have time for is you don't have much time for social kick. So everything we do has a purpose. So like, I uh, just need to get it done. So like, we, we, we kick every day. I'd kick every session if I had the time, but we do kick every day. I think that's important. And John? He's on mute. Do I have to unmute him? Is that? Yeah. I think Ian's mute, muted him. <laughs> there we go, John. Sorry there about that. I don't know what happened there. I don't know what it is I've done to you, Jamie, but you keep muting me. Anyway. <laughs> preempting it, mate. He's preempting it. <laughs> So look, um, one, of the, one of the other reasons that um, I like the idea of not kicking with the board, just to finish off the point, I suppose, is um, you, you can insist on and prescribe a degree of underwater kicking within the kick set. Mm -hmm. That's much more difficult to do if a kid's holding a kickboard. You know, so rather than go, okay, we're going 12-100s freestyle kick off 140 or whatever the set may be, um, you can progress that set on much more readily by saying we're going to do 12-100s freestyle kickoff 140 and you're going to give me six uh, maximum speed, maximum effort butterfly kicks off each wall short course. And suddenly that kick set goes into a new area. It's, you know, you raise the bar if you like, which with a kickboard is, is difficult. And I think it's where the backstroke guys get an advantage in their kick sets. Um, because they don't have a kickboard traditionally on backstroke and are able to streamline and butterfly kick off each turn and off each push-off within the kick set. So that would be another factor to consider. Um, I absolutely used to do what Ian mentioned there, which was we used to back up every higher quality set with a kick set the following morning. So if we did some kind of heart rate set or uh, race pace or race speed or something that was very physiologically demanding um, which would usually be in an afternoon rather than a morning um, then the following morning we'd be on a kick set and it and the you know two hours or up to two and a half hours sometimes in morning sets you know we'd be we'd be getting in a good 3k plus uh, of kicking even with those that might traditionally consider themselves to be sprinters like Ruta would do uh, a, a 3k kick set maybe not all on breaststroke but she'd do a big kick set a Ben Pride would be different but she certainly would be doing that kind of thing um, I don't think you can get away without kicking I think early season you've got a fantastic opportunity um, in that first six weeks September beginning of October to put big kick blocks in as part of a preparation um, it might be something that needs to be considered when we come out of this COVID nonsense and get back in the water, that kicking is part of that process. Um, because if, we, if you're doing it with good body alignment, then you're less likely to injure your athletes having been in the water for whatever, 14, 15 weeks. And um, you're also probably using the same muscle groups that they've been using because you've probably been doing a lot of land work with them that's been leg-based. So there's no reason why you can't go back to legs. I also think legs has, or kick sets, um, don't, don't have an impact on the immune system. So if the athlete's feeling a bit rough 
Um, like you've hit them with a big physiological set the day before, you can still go at them on a kick set, but you can't go at them on another hard swim set. That does damage them. And if they're in, uh, you know, if maybe they're, they're, they're coming back from a cold or a flu, um, then kicking is a good way to, to get them back integrated in that way as well. And you're less likely to see them back in their, you know, in, in, their, in their beds feeling sick again um, if, you, if you're trying to get them back in generally. So there's, there's, a, there's a whole world of reason that you would bring kicking in. And I think that if we don't start it with, we don't start it with age groupers early, you've missed a trick because um, youth guys that haven't done a lot of kick in their age group years and certainly senior guys that haven't done a lot of kick in their age group years, they're going to struggle like hell with it forever. So um, all of those, all of the programs that are, that are eight to 11 years, kicking needs to be a massive, massive part of the staple diet for the, for the age group program. Excellent. Um, can I just, uh, can, I, can I just add a little yeah. bit on that with what John said, because I was saying differentiate the kick sets from the, and the kick practices. So in other words, again, it's easy, it's say on a long course, if you've got, if you're saying 200s or 300s, you can go with fins, you know, 300 swim, 53, 50 back, and you've got to kick under between 15 and 35 metres every 50. So you, you're working the kick sets there and you, you're getting combinations of, of what's going on. And, and going back to the kickboards, John was saying I use it for, for, to get the feet in position on breaststroke, but sometimes I've used two two or three kickboards piled on top of each other on breaststroke so you lift the shoulders so the feet are in a good position to get to, to get a good hold on the water and catch at that point not big sets of that just a, tr a drill to, to do it that way or with breaststroke using two small small boards in the hands like this so you get that kind of uh, balance and stability and, and proprioceptive messaging so that that they're having to balance with the, with the small kickboards in the hands at this position, but do the kick, but not massive sets of it, but that would lead into other bits of the, of the set. So it's that difference between kick sets and kick practices for me. So. Excellent. Um, I think just, yeah, highlighting the importance of, of being able to develop good kickers and good kickers early is, 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 a, is paramount, really. Um, so our, our second topic that I wanted to cover... Um, yeah, considering the fact that, that all three of you have worked with some exceptional athletes, um, what do coaches need to be mindful of if they ever get a chance um, to coach a world-class swimmer in terms of being able to manage them effectively within a group? Um, and I know all, all three of you have had to do this at various points uh, through, through your career. Um, we'll, start with, we'll start with Dave on this one. Uh, well, mine's slightly different, maybe, because... Um... Ian, obviously, uh, at Loughborough, they got great swimmers all the time. So, like, mine was, um, I wouldn't say mine was an accident, but, like, it was certainly a lot of luck involved in that. So, um, to be honest with you, uh, one of the good things about me coaching Karen was uh, was that as she got better and she got older, then I, I had to raise my game. So, like, for me, having a swimmer like that is an opportunity for you as a coach as well to, like, keep on top of what you do. So I found, I found um, for me, it was constantly keeping me on my toes, constantly trying to make me challenged as a coach. And also, like, uh, as she got a little older, uh, certainly uh, I had to be a little bit more creative. I mean, if you're talking about, like, what, um, you know, like, what, what do you have to be wary of? Like, it's no different. I, well, it wasn't for me anyway. I just had to, like, um, make you get on really well with them. I trusted what she said. If she said I can't do this, then I 
I trust that was it. I think if you have, if you don't have trust or honesty, and you don't listen to what they say, then it's always going to be difficult. So I think for me, uh, that that was the that was the thing for us. But like I say, it's not like these guys where they've had people come in big programs. We just like a little club in Suffolk, and uh, we just happened to stumble across, uh, or we just come across this 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 swimmer who was who, who wanted to take a journey, you know. So like, and what she did is took me on it with her, really. So I, I sort of like I let I led a little bit. But I listened to Mel Marshall talk the other day. She was talking about Adam Peaty, and she talked about when he was younger, she was in front coaching, and then she was behind, you know. But then, and then it becomes a partnership, and it was a bit like that, really. As they get more confident, then you, they have their own ideas and opinions. So it's really more of a guiding thing, I thought, for her. But uh, like I say, small club, different, different parameters, and also our club was quite good with her. Uh, us is that they, what they did is they let us just do that. There wasn't a lot of problem with people going, oh, you're making, spending too much time with her or you do this because, because she was really supportive of what we did as a club. So like she was from arena leagues for us. She was from Suffolk County championships for us. And I know my, people might like go like, whatever. But the fact of the matter is it meant a lot to them. You know, it meant a lot to the club, which then allowed us, it allowed me to go and spend like weeks at a time abroad. And I mean, that was the era of Bill Sweetnam. And when we used to go away, we used to go away, you know, like we used to go away for like 10, 12 weeks, you know, a long time. So like, and that was never an issue. It was never a problem because then when we come back, the next thing you know, Karen would be swimming in our county relay and that's okay. So like, and that was okay. And I think if you can, if you can buy them into the club program, that's good. I know John once before said to me, uh, he, I was listening to John talk about, um, I think it was Ben and Ruta and about how they, um, they did stuff for the club, you know, like, and, and they are always around, you know, like, uh, it's part of the family. And I think if you can make them part of the family, then the family are, are very supportive of them. And that really helps, I think. So personally, it's like uh, you have to be honest with them all the time. You have to listen to what they're saying, just like they have to listen to you. And then I think you have to try and make them be part of what's going on, I think. I don't know if that answered it really, but... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, let's um, let's hear from, from John now um, on, on his experiences. Um, if I can find my mouse and unmute him, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> There's something going on here. You're going to need counselling after this, the I, lad. I, I don't know. I don't know you what it is. I'm not. I'm not muting him. So I don't know what what the deal is. Um, while I'm waiting for my my Max doing this weird thing where the mouse spins around, so we'll we'll, we'll go with Ian, and as soon as I can unmute John, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I guys, I, I I think as, as lots of the the Zoom calls that have gone around of late or the meetings, and, and Dave alluded to it right there, the coach-athlete relationship is key in whatever level you're talking about here. So even, you know, for your young guys and everything else, your young swimmers, the coach-athlete relationship and the trust and the belief and the honesty is, is absolutely key. And uh, it's important to, to coach the person but, but all, and to recognise individual differences, particularly when you've got a big hitter or whatever you want to call it within your programme. And they can be very uh, exceptional athletes can often be very difficult to manage. Okay, they can be difficult to manage. Not all, not all, but quite often they can be difficult to manage in the team environment. Exactly what Dave was saying there about people, you know, you got to balance it. So people are not saying, oh, you're spending too much time with that person or they're your favourites because they're fast and you, you spend more time with them. It's very difficult in a, in a normal environment to do that but you need to be very mindful of that because your role <clears> in the club might not be to coach one swimmer to an Olympic medal. It might be 
to you know to coach everything especially if the board's made up of parents that's not not the one swimmer that's going to the olympics so you need to be mindful of your job of what's going on and um i, I don't want to hug a thing but it's interesting that on this study here which i don't know why you've seen it but great british medalists and they looked at the characteristics of elite and super elite athletes and this is the point that dave said about upskilling yourself as you go along and here it's got given that high achieving athletes may well exhibit extremes of personality traits it's important that sports ensure that coaches and support staff are equipped with the skills and education to deal with such behaviors so <clears throat> their behaviors can be difficult to manage in the team environment to bring them to, to, to the general goals and objectives and values of the team but you need to have that flexibility and uh, hopefully you've got your style and your model and if your style if, if you're too narrow you'll miss out people that sit outside that here so you need to have a wide range of abilities and skills and styles to manage that person and to adjust to that person as dave said grow with the athlete um upskill yourself as much as possible but i think that you need to always assess what's going on um again i was lucky so i was always about the team and i had people that went away so ben was very ben Titley was very much about those kind of swimmers so I would say you go off with them. I'll stay here because I didn't want to see the team. I didn't want to be traveling around with one swimmer because I realized the team was too big for that. And so I was quite happy for him to go on those big camps and long trips, um, you know, but that was a, a very lucky situation or a, a evolved situation. I think Bill Sweetenham used to say that you used to have to stay ahead of the athlete. Yeah. That's the, I think that was the expression he always used to say, right? your knowledge should surpass theirs or whatever. And it was like, and he, he, he made that possible. So like, I think that's important. So actually I've written down Dave on this piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so John, I know, I know through your time at, at Plymouth, you had to manage, um, you know, various, various international athletes through to what became a very, very large club program. Um, so what would be your, your advice on, on managing those kind of, elite swimmers within that, that large club program? Um, it, it's the, um, the, when you're in Dave's situation and you've got that one guy and Ian, Ian's been very modest there where, you know, he, he had a team, but he was, but he was also very, very capable and able of producing world, world-class swimmers within that team and, and looking after them and being away on the British team and, and managing things in Loughborough too. My experience around this is, um, you, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna have that world class athlete in your program, you have to do right by them. Um, and if you can't, because the demands of the program as a whole um, doesn't allow you to 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 be the be the one that sees them come to their full potential, then you, you maybe have to accept that. And if you can't accept that, you probably need to be in a different program. Um, but Similar to Dave, um, I was able to keep that, that individual or those individuals within the group happy by A, making them part of the group, but still differentiating to the level where they knew that certain things were for them. And then um, the expectations of the group were that, of course, if this guy over here is an Olympic medalist or this guy over here is an Olympic finalist, they, they might get a little bit of different attention. But, you, but the mistake that coaches often make is is not to respect the rest of the group enough so that they 
they still feel that they're they're worthy and that they're they're, they're part of your plans. And even you know, um, but Matt Cross is on this call, and, and and Matt was part of our coaching team when we were doing this. You know, there would be times when I would say to Matt, "Look, Matt, just just stand on this lane here with Ben and Ruta. They're doing X, Y, and Z. Just just make sure they're okay for 10, 15 minutes." And I would just wander around the rest of the pool and just try and name check everybody. And it might not even be a swimming thing. It might be, how did that exam go today? Or is your granny any better? Or how was the dog when it came back from the vets? Or whatever it might be. But it was just enough for each one of those athletes in the pool to feel that John was bothered. And I was bothered, but I needed, I needed them to know that I was. And just by giving them that little bit of individual attention, quite often it would be enough to get them, get a little, get even get more from them within the set. Dave's point about staying, um, staying educated in advance of the athlete is absolutely right. So one, one of the things that I, I remember crystal clear coming from, from Bill. And my experience now tells me that athletes go through three phases. Uh, they go through the dependent phase where when they're younger, they, they need you to do things for them because they see you as the authority figure and you have the experience and they like the didactic nature of being told what to do. That's what most little kids like. Then they go through the independent phase where they're an absolute pain because they suddenly know everything. Um, and particularly if you've got a young athlete that's away on international trips and they've been told by senior athletes that they don't need to do as much of this and they don't need to do as much of that and they and they don't do it that way, right? And that's that's a real that's a real nightmare. Now you have to stay in advance of that because if you remain in your didactic do as I say mode, then they either quit you or they quit the sport. So you've got to be coy and smart at that point in time, where you've got to agree with them whilst you disagree with them. Um, and you've got to stay one step ahead of what it is that they're likely to, to, to put in front of you. And they know when you're not really listening. Nigel, Nigel Redmond has a great saying, which is um, the worst form of listening is, is preparing to speak. And they know that when, you're, when you're, they're telling you something that you know you don't agree with, they can see it in your eyes that what you're doing is you're preparing just to knock them back. So sometimes you've got to, you've got to let them have a little. For you, you let them win the battle so that you can win the war. Now, the third phase is the interdependent phase. And you only get to that um, if you get through this difficult phase too. The interdependent phase is where you're a team. And the senior athlete absolutely gets that you have a level of experience and knowledge from coaching X generations of athletes before them that gives you something that you can bring to the relationship. But they also know that nobody knows them better than them. So they, that's what they bring to the relationship. They bring the individual nature of who they are. And between you, you, you formulate the plans together. So um, I don't know if that helps, but those, those three phases, if, if you want to do cradle, cradle to grave or playground to podium or whatever you want to call it in terms of an athlete, you, know, you want to pick a good kid up at the age of 12 and still be part of what they're doing at the age of 25, then you have to inevitably go through those those phases and more so with the girls i would say than the boys yeah um i think yeah, i mean i think i would i would totally reinforce john's point about you know managing your style as they grow through this continuum in these different phases and be ready for it because it does take managing and it, 
it's not easy. So people think, oh, you know, Adam Peaty, oh, he's easy. He, he's easy to work with. That none of them are easy to work with. They're very different. They're special. That's why they're different. That's why they're as good. There's nobody else like them in the world a lot of the time. And so therefore, again, not all. But if you if you look at the different sports, say like, can you imagine managing Lewis Hamilton, Toto Wolf as a hell of a time, or Eddie Jones with Toriani in, in the rugby? You know. Their behaviors, they do things sometimes that you might say, oh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd throw them out of the team. Really? You know, the best, best driver or your best player. So it's, it, it, it is managing that, that situation. If you're too narrow, as John says, they'll be out the door or they'll quit. You've got to be flexible, even though sometimes you don't really want it. it, it you know, we all have our limits for sure. If they're outside of these parameters, then maybe it's not the place for them. But if, again, have some bandwidth there so you can cope with these individual personalities. And it is, it's not an easy situation, but it can be done. I think um, just going back to those, that kind of the three phases that John was talking about, I think if you look at, if you look at some, some club programs, you can definitely see, see where each of those phases fits in uh, with different squads and different, and different and within, within the structure. So it's, it's interesting to hear him, hear him put it out there in, in a three phase kind of approach and, I, I like that a lot. Um, so the final... Jamie, you also you also see where the coaches don't have the bandwidth that Ian's talking about because they don't have any sort of swimmers over the age of fourteen. Yeah, they're swimming somewhere else or they quit. So unless you can evolve with the athlete, you you're resigned to coaching a particular age and ilk of athlete. It's that simple. Yeah, um, I think it's yeah really important that the coaches evolve with, with their athletes um, as as we've alluded to here so the final preset topic I want to cover today before we before we open it up to a to, to a question and answer forum is um, you've all put swimmers onto international teams um, working work, working within within club environments outside of perhaps a, a national governing body a national center I can imagine for a lot of the coaches listening, uh, it, it's an aim they want to achieve one day. Um, what what are some things coaches can do to help increase the likelihood of that happening? Because um, it you know it's it's still possible even today with with our with our national centres. Uh, we'll start with we'll start with John. Um, you need the infrastructure to allow um, that to occur, and you need the level of. Uh, knowledge and experience for you to deliver within that infrastructure. I would say they're the two key things that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's again, two kinds of coaches that, that are frustrated. There, there are those that have uh, the knowledge and the ability, but they don't have the program in which to apply that knowledge and ability. And then there are those that have the, the, the program, but the, their knowledge and their ability doesn't meet the resource that's available to them. And they're the two types of coaches that, that don't quite get um, athletes onto international teams or certainly don't do it regularly. And if they do if they do achieve it, quite often it's through athlete talent uh, rather than program or coach delivery. Um, so I would say the fact that you're on this call today, you, you're an open book and you need to continue being an open book and that there's, there's never a point where you stop learning there's never a point where there isn't something new that you can pick up. There are no secrets in swimming anymore, and there, there are there are no people that are gonna, uh, not many people anymore that that hide what it is that they're doing and think they've got some kind of 
magic swimming elixir that nobody else knows about because that's not true. Um, and, and I would say that if you're, if you're open to, to knowledge and to redefining yourself and throwing last year's logbook away and starting again, then the next thing you need is you need a program that's supportive of you in developing the resource that you need. So you need hours. You need hours at the right time of the day. You need short course and long course if you can get it. Um, just having one rather than the other to, for me is a problem. I think all long course is worse than having all, all short course. So you, you need a little bit of both. You need a strength and conditioning program in place. You need sports science and sports medicine support for those kind of athletes. And that doesn't mean that you suddenly need to go out and hire a bunch of people, but you need to start thinking laterally. Tap into your local university, see if there are some students there that were that are interested in bolstering their CVs and working with you. Um, and uh, and then you need a you need your line manager, whether that's your committee or, or your board, to to have the same vision as you, so that when the opportunities come along, they're not going to drop in front of you. Yeah, well, we pay you to run the club, and therefore you're not going to go away with the British team or the English team or whatever it may be. Um, and you need to have that. You need to have those conversations early, particularly if you see the talent where that's going to be where, where that's going to be the one that's going to suddenly make you open and available to be on your first European juniors or your first European Youth Olympics or whatever that might be. So I would say those are the things, the, the key building blocks that you've got to have in place. Ian, what, what are your thoughts on putting swimmers onto senior or junior international teams from, yeah. from outside I mean, of the I mean, centre? I think we've covered a lot of the points already, but I think, as John says, you know, pay attention to your professional development and seize opportunities to upskill and increase your knowledge in, a, in, a, in a, a lot of areas, a wide range of areas. And again, going back to that thing that Dave pre-mentioned, I had written down, Bill said, you know, your, your experience and knowledge should be ahead of the athlete from Bill and or learn from the, be willing to learn from your athlete. James Gibson's very good at that. And he flagged that up just recently in one of his uh, Zoom talks, I think. James is very good at taking on board and giving the athletes the rein and learning from them. Because that's one of the one of the great things as well. You know, nothing is, is um, more satisfaction than you, you look at somebody swimming. Because we think it's us that does it, but sometimes you look and you go, "How did they do that?" You know, it, it goes against what you think how they were going to swim, but all of a sudden they dig out something, and then you could learn from that. How's that happened? How's it been done? Um, again, John's point: let the athlete flourish and grow through the various stages of their development and their and their career. So you need to be mindful of that. Keep that positive coach-athlete relationship as they grow through the stages of the career, be supportive and trustworthy and reliable and committed um, and consistent, all those kind of phrases. So they, they know they can rely on you. They know you're going to be there in the bad times and the good times. All right. So then treat them as people. They're not a, a body that goes up and down the pool and your respect and uh, care for them doesn't depend on how fast they swim the 100 free. It, you are there for them all the time. Uh, I think Mel was saying sometimes it's an arm around the shoulder and sometimes I might kick up the pants, but it's it's getting that right balance right. And if you make a mistake, hold your hand up and say, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. You know, da, 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 da. so you, you need to look at those kind of areas. And I would just say, enjoy the ride and just enjoy the ride as you go through um, through the different stages, because every 
you know, you're already on coming on these things, upskilling yourself, learning new things. And, and as John says, don't be frightened to try new things. People say to me, oh, well, you didn't say that two, three years ago. And I said, well, I hope I'm better now than I was three years ago. I'll maybe change. I'll, I'll do something different. Um, I'll try a different approach. So that's, that's what I would pass on to the, to the group where you have that flexibility. Dave? There's nothing to say, really, is there? <laughs> but I, will say, I will say this. Um, first of all, right, I was looking at the question you wrote down, and it says, have you got any tips how coaches can increase the likelihood of this happening? And i tell you what, that, the thing that springs to mind when I read that is I remember, and we talk about Bill all the time, right? Every, every one of us has referenced Bill. That's because I think uh, when he was here, he, he, made a, he had a big influence over a lot of coaches. You know, he, he gave opportunities. But one of the things he always used to say, he used to say, like, it doesn't matter if you've got a champion swimmer now, right? He goes, if you, he said, if you, do, if you do the right thing, if you do championship coaching every single day, then a champion swimmer will come along. And I think if you do the right things every time, every day, no matter what swimmers you've got, if you're, if you're doing all those things these guys have said, if you're doing them, if you're diligent, and if you're, right, if you're really trying to push yourself forwards, uh, then the right thing is going to happen. The one thing I would say, which Ian was talking about, which is like, you know, like enjoy the journey. But I'm like, if, if all the time you see it, especially on Twitter, is they have that graph and it said this is what talent looks like progress and it's a, like a, a jog and it's the same thing and what you have to do is if that was your swimmer you'd say to them like oh you know it's just a journey it's up and down but it is for us as well so it's not going to be a straight line and it's not going to be euphoric for the whole thing sometimes you're going to think to yourself like what the hell but the thing is is i think if you do the right thing and you're doing the right thing on, all, all the time and you're honest and you're like workmanlike, then you're going to get a result eventually. Just have to hang in there and like and pursue it. But what I would say is, I mean, John said about moving uh, to a program, and that's true, right? But I think what you need to do is you need to give yourself a bit of time. Don't don't be one of those coaches who's a year here, a year there, hunting out the golden swimmer because there isn't a golden swimmer, right? It doesn't work like that, right? They 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 come, they develop, and they move. That's what you've got to do. You just got to try and be a part of that journey and not try and hunt out the one that you think is missing. So I think give yourself some time. Like Ian said, enjoy the ride and then do do good work day in and day out and you can't go wrong. Excellent. Um, I think <clears throat> anyone listening, um, I, I, I certainly learned a lot already from, um, from these three topics covered. Um, what I want to do now is um, we've got a brief opportunity uh, to open up some general questions from viewers. Um, I want to get through as many of these as possible. So I'm going to ask uh, Davian and John to try and be as quick fire as possible um, <laughs> where, where they can. That, that means sharp, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'll do is I've got, a, I've got one question that came through on the YouTube chat already. So I'll quickly uh, just quick, uh, flick over to that. It's from uh, Neil Hamp. Um, question, John, you said to me almost a decade ago, potential means nothing until it's realised. Uh, since then, you've taken up a, a role of performance director in Ireland. Do you believe the same applies to coaches? Yeah, it's even more. It's even more true when you're when you're a performance director and you're frustrated a little bit with with maybe athletes that are showing great promise, but you know that their restriction is going to be the program that they're in, particularly in a really rural country like ours, where where clubs find it difficult to get um, you know certain hours in the pool and. I may be restricted by morning access only and don't get a great deal of afternoon access and those kind of things. So 
you know, there's, there's, there's a thousand kids that we've seen with, with, uh, with promise. Hey, look, I, this is another story, but I coached two female breaststrokers that I think in many ways were better than Ruta. But she just, she just hit the middle ground of what those two guys had. The potential that the other two had was never realized and, and, you know, and still eats away at me today in many ways. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. Potential is nothing unless it's realized. How many times have uh, we all seen someone where you think they're going to be the next wonder kid and by 14 or 15, they're swimming the same times and at 16 or 17, they're, they're either swimming slower or they're done. So we've got to do the right thing at the right time, put the right resource in place. And um, yeah, it's a very true statement. So what I'm going to do now uh, is I'm going to unmute um, all the coaches uh, within the within the Zoom call. Uh, if you want to remute yourself, feel free. Um, we had a question. I had a question come through on the on the Zoom chat from Chris Littler. Uh, Chris, do you want to do you want to come forward to your question? Yeah, um, some great uh, thoughts and opinions uh, aired already. Love it. Um, Ian mentioned the use of kick across uh, different distances, particularly in his experience from 50 through to 400. Um, just everyone's thoughts around kind of the technical differences and also the importance and utilization of kick across different distances. I can go first. I tell you what, I, I, I have not got the depth of those boys, but I tell you what, I tell you what. Uh, we used to have a physiologist work for British Swimming called Tim Kerrison. And Tim Kerrison did a lot of work on reverse periodization. And uh, one of the things that he come up with was a thing called uh, secondary removal. And like, like John and Ian were talking about how they, the next, uh, they would do their quality work in the evening and the next morning they would do big kick sets. And Tim uh, was also a big, what he did, we would do a big set. And then what we would do is, so while the lactate was still like swishing around, then they would do a secondary removal. So we'd have the max kicking after and um, all different distances. And, and I thought that was, uh, I thought that was really good. That made a big difference to us because normally what you do is you do a big quality set and then the kids would let go and then it would sort of be over and then there'd just be some easy or whatever. But like when, when you, when you start bringing in that, that kind of kicking after, uh, I thought that was a, that was a big game changer for a lot of people. When people started doing secondary, it but it made a big difference because when you're coming down the last 50 and things are getting ugly, you need to be able to kick. And that, that was one of the things that that like relayed to people that um, it doesn't matter. You still got to be able to get going. So like, um, we, we certainly do that still. And um, when we're talking distances, we, we, I remember like Ian Turner being at Loughborough and I think it was every Thursday morning or something like that. They would do eight, four hundreds kick best average, something like that. So I think, um, I think, Kicking is what you make it. I think it's one of those things where it's like, you're the coach, you've got to be creative. You know, like you've got to make it, you've got to sell it to them, I think. That's just my opinion though, but you know. Ben, um, I mean, Tim, Tim Kerrison was uh, very influential for us. And he said, oh, you guys do a reverse periodization program. And I, we never knew what it was called. We used to do this, kind of that speed up approach. Now, it sounds great because we know what it's called, but we, we just kind of invented it in, in some ways or we might have heard it somewhere, I don't know. But uh, going back to the kick question, we got a lot from Tim. And one of the things we got was looking at the components of the event, breaking the event down, almost like the race profiling, getting to the finer detail. And, uh, you know, okay, we can use examples, but um, I'll give you one example of the importance of, um, as I said, a kick practice 
looking at kick frequency. So somebody like Amy Smith back in the day, who was a sprint freestyle girl, her first 25, my thoughts was, how is she going to beat Fran Halsall? She gets left for the first 25. So you might look at the start, you might look at the positioning. But then when John e. Skinner was involved, and I know you've heard him talk about different things, and he had the, the Naval Architects guys from Southampton come up and tour them on the end of a, a tether and look at the different speeds and the flow and the, and the kick frequencies. And from that, we, we picked up that Amy needed to, a kick frequency needed to be 150 kicks a minute and uh, off the start for the underwaters into the breakouts and where the breakouts would be. And so therefore we put practices in where she could kick at 150 kicks a minute. So in, a, for in other words, it was something like one minute vertical kick, one minute vertical kick, hands on chest, hands up for the last 10 seconds, getting 25 kicks in the last 10 seconds, like that, fly kicks. So six times 25 is 150. So she was kicking at 150 rate. And then we would transfer that to dives. So you're getting that specificity of training for the individual and for the component of that event. So that's what I was saying about before, the kick practice versus the kick, the kick sets for energy systems, more the kick practices. I don't know whether that answers your question a little bit, Chris. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I heard um, Eddie Reese speak about something similar with, uh, with dolphin kicking underwater, the, the frequency of it. Um, so, yeah, kind of chimes in with that. Cheers. So, um, any any questions from people on watching on YouTube or within uh, within the Zoom call? Um, you can come forward now. So, a question from Mark Skimming. Um, one point, Mark. Do you want to? Do you want? Do you want to say that? I... Do you not want to insult their ages, there, Jim? No. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky. Alrighty, um, guys, you've all done a sort of fantastic job over 20, 30, 40 years. Now you can take that whichever way you want to do it. Um, <laughs> so you, Ian. But what? What one point would you tell yourself now? Back that 20, 30, or 40 years, or 60 years, Ian. Um, <laughs> Love you lots. Um, I think when I look back, I think, and I, once somebody asked me this question, and I used the word disservice, and, and they pulled me up on that. And later on, they said, you sh shouldn't use that word. You didn't do a disservice. Because I said, well, I probably did a disservice to these guys, the sprint guys, because I, and they said, no, you only had a falling 25-meter pool and you had a whole range of people in it. And then back in those days, I was into cranking out the meters and getting that work in. And because, because what happened then, I used to look and um, listen to things and hear all at conferences, oh, yeah, we do 70K a week or we do 80K a week, we crank out the meters. And I believe that kind of stuff, you know, like everybody does this, that's what must happen. One size fits all. So if I could, I would tell myself to be a little bit more open-minded with things and see that um, there are many ways to the podium. And then what I did was in the early days was go visit lots of programs to actually see what goes on. And that's what I would say to you guys, that if you get the opportunity to go and see programs rather than just listen to people at conferences because they'll produce the ideal presentation and you think it's absolutely perfect and it's all... And the reality is it's not like that at all and it can open your eyes so get out there and go see uh, see as many examples as you can where good practices going on 
you know, and I, and I still do that now. I'll go and I'll see where somebody's swimming. Can I go and see them? I'd like to go to the US to see Reagan Smith training, but they're all in different, these hotshot kids are a different program spread out all over the US. So it's not easy to go from one program to the other. Whereas if you end up in Florida and go to different programs or California, <coughs> easy because they're very close to you. But that's what I would tell myself, have an open mind and, and just find out, be more inquisitive and be willing to change as I go along. Dave? Uh, right, so I, I mean, uh, what, what Ian's talking about as well is when you talk about, um, I call that Instagram coaching, because Instagram is just a picture of everyone's best day, and that, that's what you get at a conference normally. No one ever tells you the, the crap set or the set they do. But if I had to say things to myself, all I would say is I need to listen more, I need to speak less, I need to ask more questions. I think you can't, you can't ask enough questions. I don't mean every athlete, I mean... I think you said this the other day, right? I mean, if you're at nationals, if you're at nationals or you're at a meet and you see someone and you want to know what they're doing, go and ask them. Because uh, 99.9% of every coach I know who is like a decent coach who's doing a good job, right, will just tell you what you want to know anyway. Like, like John said, no one's got a secret. No one keeps a secret. No one's got like a special set that makes someone amazing. And, you know, most people understand that everyone needs some help on their journey. So I, I would say that you just need to ask more questions. And, and spend less time talking, which is strange coming from me, that's for sure. But. <laughs> John? <laughs> um, look, going back 40 years, I'd be telling myself, you're going to have a really good time when you get to secondary school. I don't know if that makes you feel any better, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I've been 15 for a long time. <laughs> but, um, um, I think... I don't know that I would do an awful lot differently, if I'm honest with you, because um, all of the mistakes, and some of them are howlers, and you know, some of them are, are cringeworthy when I look back. You know, I was a head coach at 19, very young, um, certainly no soft skills or diplomacy. And, um, but I, I needed, I needed to, to go through those abrasive years um, to... To, to learn that I was going to fall on my backside if I didn't treat people properly and look after them. And, um, you know, I remember my dad saying once to me, you know, um, look, look, after, look after people on your way up, son, because you're going to need them when you're on your way down. And fortunately, <laughs> I'm not on the way down yet, but that time, you know, that time will come for all of us where there'll be, there'll be those rough times and your, your yesterday's news. So you, 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 you've, got to, you've got to look after everybody that's working with you um, and treat them with as much respect as you can. You've got to surround yourself by trustworthy people and people with integrity um, because that's, that's absolutely key. Um, and you, you, need to feel, you need to feel that the people around you, that's other coaches working with you, and uh, your community, as much as you can, have got your back. Because if, if you don't feel that uh, and you're constantly looking over your shoulder, you're never going to coach properly and coach well. I also, I also think that you've got to be careful that you don't allow yourself to become pigeonholed. Like if we go back to 2004, 2005, I was a distance coach. That's what, you know, I was coaching Cassandra Patton and uh, Laura Froschow and great 800 freestyle girls. And it was, oh, John Rudd's a distance coach. And, um, and then suddenly uh, Anthony James walked through the door and so did Ben Proud and Aaron Rickus and Levi Lucas and whoever else. And suddenly you're a sprint coach, and I didn't like that. I didn't like that tag either. 
I think you've got to be absolutely open to coach the athlete that walks through the door, right? So if the if a fifteen hundred freestyle walks through the door and you're not comfortable with that, you've got two choices: you either learn how to do it or you move them on. And if your fifty freestyle walks through the door, exactly the same. And and you've you've got to be uh, got to be all things to all men and women if you're going to be a swimming coach because we're in a sport where the diversity of need for athletes and the diversity of delivery that we have to be able to give at certain times is is mammoth, probably more than in any other sport. You know, the the athletic sprint coach in out there coaching pole vault, um, but we're expected to be able to deal with a 100 breaststroker and a 1500 freestyle at the same time and be equally as good. So avoid the pigeonholing, keep yourself uh, fresh, Keep yourself flexible. Keep yourself agile for the athletes that walk through the door. Excellent. Um, we've got a question on the YouTube chat from uh, Kim Mortimer. Um, kind of similar, uh, almost linked to, to that question. Looking back over your, your whole coaching career so far, um, on reflection, is there one thing you wish you, you could have done differently? I'll start. Yeah. I wish I had the program that could have seen Cassandra Patton into the Beijing Olympic Games, right? I didn't. I had a short course pool. It was five lanes. I had five to six athletes per lane in it. And she wanted to swim world-class open water 10K. And, I, and there had to be a conversation at one point where the two of us had to recognize that she'd outgrown my program. And so the conversation was that she needed to go to Sean Kelly because Sean had, first, he had great experience in that kind of swimming. Secondly, you had Kerry Ann Payne there as a training partner. And thirdly, she was going to get a 50-meter pool and potentially run late. And she got a bronze in 2008. And I asked myself every day if she'd have stayed in Plymouth with me, would she have got the bronze? And the answer is maybe, but nowhere near as definitely as she did get it. And from that day onwards, I said that was never going to happen to me again. That if another one came along, I was going to make sure the program was in place so I didn't have to look myself in the mirror and say, you've got to let that one go, John. So um, that to me was the most heartbreaking moment of my career. Now, fortunately, um, I was able to coach medalists later on. But for, for a lot of us, uh, the one that walks through the door that could do that might be the only one in your coaching lifetime. Um, and so um, every day from that point forwards, I was never going to be in a situation again where the, the resource that I had limited my ability to deliver. Um, and, and then Plymouth blossomed from there because I just went nuts in trying to put everything in place that I needed, just in case I was lucky enough again to have another Cassie. Ian? Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Uh, and I, can I, I would like to move this on to, to a question that I had, and it came, it relates to that a little bit about Johnson, about creating a, an environment where you can um, cater for all the athletes, or do you pass them on? And I think this is a hot topic right now, and, I, and I'd like to ask the question to, to Dave and John, and which is relates to the whole group, I think, and it goes back to the, the previous question. It's, it's like now, in the current environment, coaches are maybe encouraged to to pass the swimmers on to let's say national centers 
when maybe the coaches have all the facilities and the skills, they have the 50 meter pools, they have the backup service, they have everything else, but the aim is to have 70% of athletes in a national center. So would, would these coaches here, is it, is it dampening their ambition or their expectation to coach Olympians? I mean, would coaches in this forum be able to qualify to be a coach on an Olympic team? I mean, what's your take on that these days? Ian, I'll, I'll step in first and then Dave can come in, right? Because I'm a performance <laughs> director that looks after two national centres. Uh-huh. And when I coached in Plymouth, there was no way that an athlete was moving to a national centre as far as I was concerned. That's because, the question I was asking. Yeah, because, <laughs> um, because I had the resource. I had the resource as good as a national centre and, and I believed in my coaching ability. Um, now, any athlete where their ceiling is the program or their ceiling is the coach and that's evidenced by plateauing or, or not making sufficient progress, that's a different story. I have to have those conversations now, um, you know, in the job that I'm in and, and my, my open statement to the nation and it hasn't changed is if your athlete continues to make sufficient progress in your program, I'm never going to talk to you about whether they should be somewhere else. But if, if suddenly they're a year or two years without making progress, or even worse, they're regressing, there has to be a conversation. So you, club coaches, you have to make your programs bulletproof and resilient to someone suggesting that, they, that your athlete needs to move. Because if you're continuing to, to see them progress, then why would anybody suggest that? So that would be my advice to you. As, as, a, as, a, as a coach that didn't work in a national center and wanted to see athletes onto international podiums, create a program that makes it very difficult for anybody to justify removing an athlete from there. Uh, I don't know, I don't know like that. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I would... Um... I would say, that to be honest with you, like if it, m- 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 the kids I have don't leave because of swimming. The kids I have leave because they go to university. Uh, I, and uh, I, although we're trying to address that, you know, like, so that takes time, doesn't it? But the thing is, is that, like, uh, it, I think it's true, though, Ian, uh, people are encouraged to leave now. I think it's much more complicated for you to have a swimmer on the Olympic team. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's complicated because... Um, there isn't a it doesn't seem to be a route for a coach to be on the national team I don't think you know like so but but I think it goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning about keeping ahead of your athlete I think if you're doing the right thing and you're constantly striving to improve people notice that kind of stuff and if you're doing a good job you don't even have to be you don't even have to have the best room in the country but if you're doing a good job you've got a great reputation and you're solid hard-working I think one thing that uh, people do think sometimes is they think that they can work hard for like Monday to Wednesday and then like take a few days off and work like that. It's never worked like that for me. It's like, it's just, it's hard work every day. And it's like trying to be as diligent and as purposeful as you can all the time. And I think if you do those things, then I think uh, you, you, you can get something out of it. Maybe not on the Olympic team, but then the Olympic team at the moment is, is a different issue, right? That's to do with like selection policies and stuff like that. But when, Back in the day, right? If you did a good job, you stood a chance of going. And I thought that I thought that was that was good for me as a coach to know that I I had like a career route, which is let's be honest, right? 
Like we do a lot of early mornings. We do a lot of work. We do a lot of. We have a lot of uncomfortable conversations with parents. Stuff like there needs to be something to look forward to at the end of the day. You think yourself like I, I had a great time. I had a great journey. It was a good career or whatever. Excellent. I think some uh, some good thoughts there. Um, had a question coming to me um, privately from uh, from Carl Grosvenor. So Carl, do you want to do you want to kick off with that? Jamie, um, my question is based around sports science support. You touched on the importance of that when developing international athletes within a club program. So my question was based around how you manage that and how you get the balance between giving sports science staff free range and you directing that. Thanks, Carl. Uh, who wants to, who wants to start? I think John would. John, as a performance director, might be <laughs> better for you to answer that one. Um, well, okay. Gabby, here's, here's the first thing. You're in charge. You're absolutely in charge, and you make the decisions. The way that sports science should work um, is they, they're advisors, and they give you opinion, and they give you professional advice, but ultimately you make the decision. Because to tell you now, um, when, uh, when the athletes stood on the podium, all of the sports scientists will be crowded around you, uh, waving the flags and jumping up and down and going, I was part of that. And, and when you have a nightmare and uh, they, don't, they don't even make the semi-final and you turn around, you can't take the sports scientists for dust, right? So uh, the, you're, you're accountable. You're absolutely accountable for the athlete and their progress and the, and the sports scientists aren't. And if you, if you allow them to be accountable, then you're making a mistake, I would say. But they, they'll have information in, your head, in their heads that you can never have in yours because they're experts in that field. So if you try and be a psychologist and a physiologist and a nutritionist and a physiotherapist and a biomechanist, and you, you just can't do it. I just don't think you can. But what, what, they, what you do have is you have the swimming-specific knowledge and quite often these guys have knowledge, but it isn't quite as swimming specific as you'd necessarily want it. Even, even when some of these guys have been working in national centers for a year or two, they're still generic practitioners with a little bit of swimming experience. So you're the, you're the expert and, and you make the decision, all right? So uh, you're, you're the headmaster and, and everybody else are the deputy heads or the, the heads of department feeding in, but it's, it's your school and you're gonna make the decision ultimately. Um, the, the best way of working with these guys is to get them together. I think if you have them working in silos, you've got problems. So the notion of a multidisciplinary team where everybody's feeding in and everyone's sharing information with the coach central to that is, is the key model. So for instance, um, I would wherever possible want the physiotherapist stood next to the strength and conditioning coach. Because we know that some strength and conditioning coaches, you know, they're full of beans and full of life, and um, it's all brute force and ignorance. And you need the, the physiotherapist sometimes just to go, hang on a minute, why are they in that position? We know this kid's got issue X, <coughs> we're just going to end up with them, with them injured. Um, you also need a nutritionist working alongside the, the strength and conditioning coach, because there's certain things where the athlete needs to be fueled at a certain point for them to do certain activities in the gym. So if all of those things are happening in silos and, and you're not taking control of them, then, then I think you've got a problem. Ultimately, you get to an interdisciplinary team. 
And that's where they all have a little bit of knowledge about each other and each other's workings and start to, to, to blend the sports science team together. So whilst the physios got the athlete laid on the bed and they're giving them the, they're giving them the MOT for the week or the rub, um, they're doing a little bit of the psychologist work that the psychologist has asked to try and creep in. So you get that blending. But the, the, the key message is these people are important, but don't let them be accountable because they shouldn't be. You should be, you should be accountable and create a situation where it's absolutely clear that they provide you with advice, but you're the one that communicates with the athlete and with the team. Um, and the, the, the moment you start letting them pick up the phone to athletes and do things independently away from you, you've got problems. I mean, I would, I would 100% agree with John. For us as coaches, it's a very interesting role because we're, we're managers, we manage swimmers, we, you know, we get the best out of them, that's what we do. We manage people, it's exactly the same in business. But we're at the hub of it and the sports scientists feed in with all these different skills and knowledge. We, we can't possibly know as much as them because that's their expertise, that's their career, that's their knowledge base. But we can know little bits. We need to know little bits so we can communicate. They need to be able to come down to our level as coaches as well because they can sometimes be flying high up here somewhere academically. Uh, but ultimately, we as coaches make the decision of how we apply that knowledge. Um, now, you might say on what basis, but we... we we then apply the knowledge, we ask their advice, and we can decide to accept that and apply it or not. Because, as John says, the results rest on our heads, so it's how fast the person goes. Quite often, you might find that um, you will ask a question of the sports science and, and they'll, re they'll refer to all different research papers. They're all coming up with conflicting uh, arguments or conflicting conclusions. And you go, well, hang on here, I have to make a decision. I can't go, oh, yes, well, maybe I'll do a bit of that or maybe I'll do this set. No, you, you as the coach have to deliver something to that athlete that you think will move them on. And, and I'm not saying they're not invaluable by any means because they are. And as I said before, we got some great things from Tim Carrison. And uh, when I first started, we used to sit in office with some great guys like Dave Redden, who was head of sports science and medicine for the London 2012 Olympics. Some absolutely fantastic guys. And I learned a lot from them. Said, oh, can you tell us about this? What's what's happening here? Uh, Henrik Lacomi was another one who was an was an expert in sprint exercise. And when I came back from Arizona, I ran stuff by him. Henrik, what's what's happening here? They're assisting resistance, you know. They're assisting a resist. It's like, well, what's the point of that? And he said, oh, well, they're developing power. So then I I, I would put little things in. I said, oh yeah, that makes sense. And Tim Kerrison was another one, as I said that give us a lot of information and you do gravitate towards people who are probably thinking similar things to yourself, but have the more scientific background for sure. Um, and other people you might think, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm liking what, I'm liking what Tim's saying. So I'll, I'll go down this route with my model. Um, but uh, exactly what John says, you're the person in the, in the hub of it, in the middle of it, and you manage all of those services and you're the one that commu communicates that advice to the, um, to the to the athlete and i i don't have i never had i know it sounds sacrilege but obviously i mentioned johnny and people like that we, we did use some research for sure and I, and I would consult with different people on different like aeronautical engineering or whatever it was going to be on streamlining and when new suits came out those kind of areas but i never used 
heart rates. I've never used lactates. I've never used, you know, I go to Greg Troy's program. I go to um, Eddie Reese's program. I don't see a Frank Bush. I don't see heart rate monitors. I don't see lactate analysis going on. I don't see any of that. They get in and swim. Guys, it's not that complicated going up and down a tank of water as fast as possible. I mean, it, 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 you know, we make it more complicated than it is or we think it is sometimes. Or the sports scientists like to think it is sometimes. Excellent. Dave, any thoughts to add to that in terms of working with <laughs> No, I think we're running out of time, aren't we? Yeah. The only thing I'd say today is, uh, is uh, 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 it's a story, really. It's not about that, but it's, it's sort of, uh, it's on that same thing. Is They used to say to Bill Sweetnam, Bill Sweetnam used to be notoriously awful to the sports scientists. And they said, oh, Bill, you know, you've got to give them more credit. And he said, the day that he sees the Olympic champion credit the sports scientist in his press conference, then he would as well. He said, they never do, do they? They always think they're coaching. He's the same as John. He said, when it's all going well, everyone's like, oh, look, everyone. And then when they're not, they're like that Homer cartoon where he just moves back into the bush. Exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, um, Pat, uh, we've got to kind of wrap this up pretty quick, um, but I want to get through uh, another few questions uh, before we do that. So if we can keep the answers to these questions, uh, it's kind of as brief and as concise as, as possible. Um, <laughs> got that, John? <laughs> Question from be the sensible one. Question from uh, Matthew Cross. Um, what are you looking for when you're building a team of coaches around you? I'll go for that if you like, because including the centre, which evolved from from the from the, the club program or the university program, if you want to say when when Ben and all these guys just gravitated towards that. I looked for having people who bought into the core values, but each one had a different coaching style, personality, and each one had a different coaching model that developed. So they didn't all have my thoughts. I wanted somebody that could, because maybe I, I didn't have ideas or I couldn't deal with that kind of athlete. And you've heard me say a million times, you know, that for example, again, like you'd say, Fran and, uh, Fran and Amy, British number one and two, Fran a bit better than Amy. Fran swam with Ben and then with James. Amy swam with me, never trained together. Totally different animals, totally different work, totally different personalities. So it's good to have a variation within your, within your coaching staff. In my, my, as long as everybody buys into the team ethos and the direction of the team and the values of the team and where it's going. But to have different personalities with different ideas as long as they've got the commitment and everything else is, is perfect for me. And that was the original plan, really. It evolved as we went along. Cool. Is that a short answer? <laughs> yeah. I'm being short. Oh, okay. Uh, anyone else want to I, add I to would, that? I, I would agree. I would say, just like John said earlier on, I think you need people that you can trust experience. Not, not just agree with what you're saying, but people you can trust to tell you and to be honest with you. Because it's, it's people like that that you need. When you come back from a great meet, you need people to be honest with you. When you come back from a, a rubbish meet or something's gone wrong, you need people to be honest with you. You need people to like, support what you're doing, but be honest. That's what you want. That's all you need. I'd take a trustworthiness, honesty and integrity over coaching knowledge any day. Because you can add coaching knowledge, but you can't, you can't add the first three. Um, they're, they're the core values. And... Um, I would say that a really, really good strategy that we used was to uh, employ your retiring athletes because they understand the culture of the program. 
they understand what it is that you're, you're trying to achieve um, and um, you, you, you're giving them something back for the services that they've given to the sport, even if it's just for one or two years before they go on to something bigger and better. Um, and, and, and give them, give them the, give them the green light that if they find something bigger and better, that you're not going to hold it against them. You're going to support them, that you, that you're part of that, um, that process to allow them to, to flourish and develop. But I would take, I would take those personal traits over, um, any coaching knowledge any day. Cool. Um, question from Kevin Ayers. What test sets do you do and why? I don't do any because I'm a national performance director. Ian and Dave, over to you. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that. I don't, I don't do test sets per se, but I, w- I would monitor the, the let's say, the, the training times and the rates and everything else during certain key sets. Um, for example, the heart rate sets in particular, I'd look at and I'd look at how that evolved through the phasing and through the, 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 the power and speed phases as we moved into the meet and getting a little bit more rest, the heart rate times, the times for the heart rates would uh, would drop significantly and we would know we're kind of getting ready to, to race fast. So I wouldn't have any particular test sets uh, per se. Dave? Uh, we, we don't have, uh, we, we don't use test sets, uh, n- not at all. We have, we have things that, like Ian said there, I mean, not, not quite as in-depth as Ian, but there's things that we do that we've done before, but we don't, it's not a test set per se that we would record times and stuff like that. Uh, that's not something we do. Okay. Um, question from Jeff. Uh, this is mainly for, for Ian and John because they work, uh, they work, worked in programs where they have older youth swimmers coming uh, from club programs. Um, have you experienced athletes who have been coached um, out of the sport because they've done too much as, as an age group youth level, uh, including weight work, uh, etc.? Uh, what advice would you give to age group youth programs to then send in swimmers onto universities or performance centres to avoid that happening? Um, I'm going to give my answer, then I'm going to have to shoot Jamie because I've got a, a meeting at, at 4.30 that I can't miss. Yep, so what I'm going to say is, um, okay, look, this is, this is the million-dollar question, right? How do you keep an athlete and their parents satisfied enough in their age group years to have the chance of um, achieving qualifying times and winning things without that being detrimental towards the, the long-term future of them coming to fruition in their, in their senior years, right? And there's no, there, there is no model, there is no magic solution to, to getting the balance right. And you, you've got to find a way where you, you, you're sat in the middle of absolutely working on skill and technique and the things that they're that are paramount to get right early but at the same time doing enough work so that the county championships the regional championships the nationals whatever it may be they, they see light at the end of the tunnel because it's no good saying to a 10 year old kid don't worry you, you're going to be terrible for 15 years but it'll all come right when you're 25 because that you know who, who's going to who's going to hang around who's going to hang around for that so you've got to so um, but but you can't be an unscrupulous coach where you're inflicting senior programs on young people. Um, he says coaching a 15-year-old Olympic champion. That's slightly different, right? Because with some of the females, and particularly in, in breaststroke and maybe in distance free, you can push them on a little bit earlier if you, if you can see that. 
But that rarely happens with the lads. Rarely happens with the lads. Um, you know, so we, we've, we've got to be doing the right things at the right time. And I think that's where, and, and where the same in Ireland, um, the coach, the coach um, education system needs to be looked at because we go uh, level one coach, level two, level three coach. The level three coach is the top ranked. The level one coach is the one that's more likely to be working with the age groupers. So who wants to be a level one coach when they can be a level three? And level three means you're working with senior athletes. So our coaching structure just encourages everybody to move towards the top end of the sport. I think we need a coach education structure where um, there's age group coach, but you can be at, say, gold, silver, or bronze level. And then there's youth coach where you can be at gold, silver, and bronze level. And senior coach, where, because some people are absolutely predisposed to working with a particular group of athletes on, on their athlete continuum. But we encourage people to push towards a senior end all the time just by implication that the coaching level is a, is a higher reward. So that would, might be another conversation for another day. But um, look, if, 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 people have, if people have done damage to an athlete, it's really, really hard to undo that. It's not like, you can, it's not like taking a car to a garage and you put a, just put a new engine in it because the body works okay. You can't do that. So we've just got to keep educating, 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 and, and having people that um, are, are willing to not live their coaching ambitions through 10- and 11-year-old kids. And that's the message that we just need to keep putting across. Excellent. Um, Ian, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's looking at the programme that's appropriate, not to their age, but to their level of development. And, Bye, everybody. Uh, John, Thank you, John. John. Thanks Take for it easy. And rate of improvement. So as John said, it might, it might be that they could be one of the fastest swimmers in the world at 15, going 16, particularly the females, as Ruta was, as Penny Alexiak was, as Reagan Smith is in the US on the backstroke. So you've got to take it when it's there, but also be mindful that there is longevity. And um, from, a, from a, a personal experience, we have coming through the doors at Loughborough in particular, a, a lot of times when we take them to the first meet, they'll go, oh, I was faster than that when I was 15 or 14. And we go, yeah, hey, you, that wasn't the person that walked through these doors. The person that walked through these doors was this. We can live with that and resurrect you, you t by putting things in place. You've got to live with that. So I think in the age group program, you've obviously got to provide success, um, excitement and, and fun and enjoyment within your program and a positive experience um, at whatever stage of development they are. And I think you've got to be careful of that. But again, say, oh, well, we'll go through this structured plan, as John says, in 15 years' time, you might you might be a, a really fast swimmer. We're going to swim all this sub-max swimming of aerobic base, and we're going to swim, you know, um, 15, 400 sub-max all the time every day or something and not go fast. Well, they're going to be out the door and go to another sport. Especially now with Generation Z, you can't afford to go down those lines, I think. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Dave, your point of view from a coach that, that ends up eventually sending swimmers off, off, off to those programmes? Uh, I think, um, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I think from what I understand, from when uh, we, we've been on a few chats with Mel and Dave Hemmings, and like, and people have asked that question about like, so what do you expect? And I think one of the things that they said was to do around the gym program. And they said, uh, and they, they, they said like, what's ideal for them is for kids to arrive at a university program 
who've not been exposed to the gym, who've not been uh, had their ass kicked or squatting until they can't stand up, that kind of thing. And it just gives them, it just gives them somewhere to go. You know, like it's. Uh, I think I think if you like Ian said, I think if you just concentrate on them and having a good time, making sure it's fun, giving them skills, that's all you're trying to do, right? I think that's 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 all you can do as a club coach, right? Just try and make it fun, enjoyable, skill them up. And uh, and then when they move on to the next part of journey, it is what it is. They either move on or or they don't. But like as long as you do your bit, that's all you can do. I think. Excellent. I would add, I'd add one quick thing with that. That's, yeah. I think going away from the actual practical things of the work in the gym or the pool or the sets that you do, it's the values and uh, behaviours. So building a little, gradually building in ownership of their own perform of their own performance, taking ownership of their behaviours that are going to produce that uh, that performance. So it's gradually build educate them in those areas which will help when they come and they're away from home and, you know, mum or dad are not looking after every single thing they do, packing their bag and, you know, doing everything else. So just gradually build in those little behaviours as we go along. Independence. Excellent. Well, um, thank you, Dave, Ian and uh, John uh, for, for your time. Um, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. Thank you to... To all the viewers that have tuned in, either on the Zoom call or, or on YouTube, um, hope you managed to take something away from from the session. Uh, I know I certainly did. Um, just but quickly before we go, um, just want to say thank you to our sponsors, uh, Streamlined, who provide uh, excellent online teaching qualifications, uh, as well as Youth Sport Nutrition, uh, who provide excellent uh, nutrition uh, supplements and products for, for youth swimmers. Um, so make sure go over to our website, thepoolsidepass.com, and you can find out more information uh, on our sponsors there. I uh, want to hear your feedback on this session, um, so make sure you get in touch with us via social media at, uh, at The Poolside Pass, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, thank you very much for tuning in, and until next time, Thanks, uh, keep learning. Take care. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, You're welcome. No worries. Good, good to see you. Keep coaching well, guys. Fast swimming, I'll soon be here. We'll soon be back, a fast swimming train. Come you need to be drinking.